0: we're going to spend a lot of time in the book of romans and 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 i ask myself why why are we going to spend a lot of time in the book of romans i'm not going to do like some of the uh, uh, gentlemen past years that have spent studying those texts because some of them have taken like seven years 14 years going through that bit by bit but we're going to take at least uh, uh, about 26 weeks this year we'll break it up and come back in next year with the last uh, half of the book of romans next year um, but I think it 's important for us. you see the Book of Romans is probably one of those books that has actually changed more of the course of history of the church than any of the other books in the Bible. It is a powerful book that that brings to us the message of the Gospel of Jesus in a very unique way as Paul is writing to the church there in Rome. Um, Augustine is probably one of the most influential theologians after the Apostle Paul. In in the 4th century, in in A.D. 386, after years of seeking truth in philosophy, in hedonism, and and in just a worldly lifestyle, Augustine was there and he heard two children um, playing on a playground and they were chanting, Take and read, take and read take and read, take and read. They were just chanting that over and over again. And it caught his attention. And so he went and he picked up a copy of the book of Romans and he began to unroll that and read. And so just randomly opening that text, he came to Romans chapter 13, verse 13 and 14. And this is what he read. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and in drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Now, As he read that passage of Scripture... And he writes in his letters and his commentaries, he, he, he makes this moment and that text as a pivotal point in his conversion to faith in Jesus Christ. Everything else he'd been looking for was trying to satisfy the desires of his body, of his mind. And now all of a sudden, this changes his whole outlook on how he should live. About a thousand years later, in Germany, a monk by the name of Martin Luther, he was depressed almost to the point of suicide. And he tried to pursue righteousness through strict self-discipline. And he found himself hating the idea of the righteousness of God because there was no way that he could measure up to it. He would just fail at it. And then he started meditating on Romans chapter 1, verse 17, which we'll talk about in a couple of weeks. And and, and in that passage, it talks about the righteousness of God is how it is revealed in the gospel message of Jesus. And so from that point on, Luther wrote, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through the open doors of paradise. So all of a sudden now we notice there's a couple men whose lives have changed because of this book, and they impact the church for all history. Roughly the same time in which Luther is making this conversion in his own faith, another man by the name of William Tyndale, he's over in England, and, and he's working on an English translation of the Bible. This is about a century, about 100 years or so, before the King James Bible is written. Now, William Tyndale is using the Hebrew and the Greek text to translate into English rather than just the Latin that they had been doing. He believed that everyone should have access to the Word of God, not just the Latin scholars. So here's what Tyndale wrote about Romans. He said, It is the principal and most excellent part of the New Testament. And I think it appropriate that every Christian know it by heart and exercise himself therein, continually, as daily bread for the soul. No man can read it too often, or study it too well. For the more it is studied, the easier it is. The more it is chewed, the pleasanter it is. And the more it is searched, the more precious are the things found in it. It wasn't too much long after that that he was uh, executed for his Writing and translating this scripture and trying to give it to the common person, and so he was burned at the stake for that. Also, about the same time, another man, John Calvin, he was reading the book of Romans and he said, This he said, this in his commentary, he said, The entrance, Romans is the entrance to all the most hidden treasures of scripture. John Bunyan. Who wrote Pilgrim's Progress that many of you have probably read? He wrote that while he was in prison for his faith. In the sense he was reading the book of Romans, and after he read the book of Romans, then he wrote this wonderful book, The Story of Pilgrim's Progress. John Wesley. About a hundred years later or so, he was the founder of what we call the Methodist Church today, along with his brother Charles, who's a writer of more than 6,000 hymns that we sing, including like Hark the Herald Angels Sing. He was converted to Christ in 1738 while he was reading Luther's introduction to the book of Romans. And so he wrote in his journal as he's getting ready to study the book of Romans, I felt in my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ and Christ alone for my salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins and saved me from the law of sin and death. And we know know what John Wesley and his brother have done when it comes to the movement of the church in history. More recently, another scholar and preacher, John Stott, He's talked about his kind of love-hate relationship with the book of Romans because of some of the personal challenges that were painful to him. He says, and I think this is a very powerful statement, and I think we need to hear it, and especially for me as a preacher, because he's a preacher himself, and he says, it was Paul's devastating exposure of, human, of the universal human sin and guilt in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through chapter 3, verse 20, which rescued me from the kind of superficial evangelism which is preoccupied only with people's felt needs. So why are we going to study the book of Romans? I think because the church needs more thinkers like Augustine. It needs more reformers like Luther and Calvin and, 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 and more, more hymns and, and things like, like Wesley. It, it needs more preachers who are committed to the gospel, not just some kind of superficial evangelism or, or meeting felt needs. It needs people who are going to dig deep into the understanding of God and what Christ has done for us. So this morning I want to kind of give you just a a brief overview of the book of Romans. There's there's so much we can't just do it all at once. So I just want to kind of lay this out for you. The first thing we're going to start with the book of Romans in Christian theology, and as we study this letter, as they call it an epistle, we must understand the Apostle Paul, who he is, what is it about him, and, and, and since His writings really, they dominate most of the New Testament. He's written 12 of the letters that are in our New Testament. And so it compels us to find out a little bit about him. His understanding of the words and the works of God are central really to our formation of, of the church. He uses terms such as justification and sanctification and redemption and glorification. And he spells all that out in the book of Romans and some of those main principles of faith. It's important to understand as well that that the key to these building blocks, and so Paul uses these as a sense to build his case for Christ, that he is the Messiah... And also how we, as followers of Christ, Christians, how we ought to live. And so he lays that out for us in the book of Romans. And a view of these kind of helps us as readers to see a little bit of the smaller parts of the letter so that we see how they really fit into the scheme of the whole. So I think as we're going to dig into the pages of this book, of this letter, we're going to discover that Paul talks a lot about sin. He talks even more a lot about faith and about the Mosaic law and and how Israel uh, uh, fits into God's plan. He's going to talk about the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and how that that moves us, and and along with practical insights about the walk of faith for the, the believer in Christ and the one who wants to follow him. So we have to ask ourselves, who is Paul? Who is this man that all of a sudden when we pick up our Bible we begin to see book after book after book, letter after letter that are written by him? Who is this guy? I mean, he, he wasn't there with Jesus like you know, the twelve disciples, was he? Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, and John Philip, Thomas, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, Judas and Bartholomew? Well, Paul's name wasn't in there. So where does this guy come from? Well, the book of Acts, which is right before the book of Romans, it chronicles the life of this man as he is moving with the church around the Mediterranean Sea and and taking the gospel message with him everywhere he goes. You see, he becomes a world changer for Christ and his obedience to God, but that's not how he starts out. You see, Paul wasn't always a Christian. At first, he believed that God wanted him to confront and eliminate Christians. People who were followers of what Judaism was calling, quote, the way. Because Remember, Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life. So they weren't called Christians to begin with. They were called followers of the way. And so Paul identified himself against the way. This group of the way, they kind of were attracted to Jesus, who was a man who had been crucified in Jerusalem, And now they are claiming that he came back to life and he rose from the dead. Many of the religious leaders of that time, they harshly rejected these people because of the scandal that surrounded the cross and everything that took place there. And so to them as well, anybody who would be crucified on a cross really had no right relationship with God and they could not please God. So this man Jesus definitely would not have been the Messiah that they're speaking of. Paul also had a different name that he went by during those early years. His name was Saul. And he joined with these hostilities towards the church. And in Acts chapter 8, verse 3, it tells us that Saul was ravaging the church. And he was entering house after house, And he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So here we have a very zealous individual who's attacking the church in a hostile way, a ravenous way. And he's raging himself against the church and actually dragging people out of their own homes and putting them in prison because they believe that Jesus died on a cross and he rose from the dead and they were calling him Messiah Paul was trained as a rabbi in the Jewish faith he was a teacher he was a biblical scholar during the first century Judaism and he excelled in his role as a student of the Old Testament laws he he was uh, this 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 idea of being a teacher of Israel and he studied thoroughly the scriptures but somewhere he missed the point even though the Old Testament was the focus of his life he didn't quite see it it wasn't until a radical event happened on the road to Damascus that altered his life because he saw Jesus in a different light literally the light of Christ shone upon him. And since that moment, his life was never going to be the same. He became consumed with a new mission, not to eradicate the church, but to multiply it. He was now going to take with him wherever he would go, intentionally, the message of the way, which is the message of the cross, the message of salvation, to the far reaches of the world and to the Gentile communities. And, on, and, and, and in doing so, he then begins to write letters to these churches that he is establishing or that he wants to go visit. And that's where this letter of the book of Romans comes from, from this man. So what is the purpose or the reason behind Paul writing to this church in Rome, whom he's never even seen yet. While he's on his third missionary journey, what he's doing is he, he's coming up the Mediterranean coast along the, the eastern border, and he makes his way up into Asia Minor and up around Macedonia and down through Greece, and, and he's, he's taking the gospel message with him. Now, this is the third time he's making this trip up and around, and while he makes some time in Corinth a city there on the eastern side of Greece, he is going to now write a letter to this church in Rome that he wants to go visit. Up until this point, he's not been able to visit the church in Rome. He'd heard about their faith. He'd come in contact with people who'd been there and who had come and visited from him. And, and, and he wants to go see the capital city of the empire of Rome and see what God is doing there. But up till now, the Holy Spirit has denied him that opportunity to go visit but he's on his way. And so he wants to write them a letter to let them know he's coming. And so from Corinth, he takes time to write them with hopes of visiting him in the, in the near future after he makes his way down to Jerusalem because on this third missionary journey, he's been collecting money from the churches to send to the poor struggling church in Jerusalem where persecution has broken out crazily. Now, I want to pause a second, and I want to say thank you for your generosity. See, because the church is in the Democratic Republic of Congo, in the continent of Africa, and there, there is a poor church struggling to make a difference in their community, and your gift through our Easter offering far surpasses what they were anticipating. So we're going to build a medical clinic in Kisenso, Congo. Because of your generosity. (laughs) And that is, you know, I would love to go there and take them that money. But instead, we're going to send it and Trezor Yenyi is going to come here this summer. And he wants to thank you for your generosity. So the church is still being gracious in its gift-giving. And that's what Paul was doing. He was taking money to Jerusalem from the other churches that were collecting for them so that they they could survive the persecution that was happening in Jerusalem and the gospel would continue to grow out of Jerusalem to the far reaches of the world. But once he was done with that, Paul had a determination that he was then going to go to Rome and visit with these people. And so we see this, the purpose of the letter is deduced here from Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. The whole idea of the gospel message is formulated right here. And so I want to read to you what it says there. In chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first. And also to the Greek, for in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Obviously, this letter then is going to be about the gospel message of Jesus Christ. So we need to understand what, God, what, what Paul means with the term gospel. Now, now, we know it means simply good news, but what is this good news? And he's going to lay that out for us. The gospel encompasses the power of God to salvation. For anybody who's going to believe. It's not just the Jews, but we know that Jesus was Jewish and he, and he came into the Jewish culture and into the Jewish nation. And he was promised through the Jewish nation of people as well. That's how they became But beyond that, he brings salvation to the rest of the world. That word Gentile is anybody who's not Jew. So that's me. So the gospel message is a salvation that's being offered even to me. He's going to speak about the righteousness of God and about the existence of people who live by faith and what that means. So Paul writes in in a a commonly called literary term called diatribe. It's it's a style of argument. And so what he's going to do is, in the essence of diatribe is this. Someone makes a point, and then in the process of making that point, they then propose questions that are either in conflict with it, or questions that will enable it to be supported and and proven. It's this verbal combat that goes on in his letters. And it leads then to the next step of agreement. Now, the imaginary verbal opponent begins in chapter 2 of the book of Romans, verses 1 through 5. So kind of lay this out here. He says, So therefore, you have no excuse. We have no excuse for what? We'll we'll get into that in a little while, but we have no excuse not to believe in God and and not to put our faith and trust in Him. And so he says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourselves, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Stop a second. In, In essence, what he's saying, you sit in judgment over people who have murdered somebody. But as a judge, you're also a murderer. You sit in judgment over people who have lied and who have cheated and who have stolen. But as a judge, you've done the exact same thing. He says, now hold on a second. This is who we are. He says, in passing judgment, we ourselves are guilty of this. And so in verse 2, he says, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Now here's his question. This is the diatribe. So do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you're going to escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's patience is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard an impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's ju- righteous judgment will be revealed. Well, then he proceeds to carry out this form of making a point, asking questions, making a point again, bringing it all together over and over again throughout the rest of the letter, asking questions such as these in, in Romans 3.1. And what is the advantage of there of being a Jew? Or or what is the value of circumcision? In chapter 4 verses 9 and 10 he says, Is this the blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? Well, it was not after, but before he was circumcised. He goes on in chapter 6 and he asks us this question when he's talking about our righteousness and how we deal with sin. He says in chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ... Jesus were were baptized into his death. You you can't continue to live in sin if you're going to be a Christian. In Romans chapter 10, verse 14, he says, How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how were they to believe in him who have they not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So as he lays all this out throughout the book of Romans, I think we're going to find it a really interesting study because he's going to help us grow in our faith. It's fascinating that Paul moves his argument along by questions that are asked by this imaginary debater. And the nature of these questions indicates really for us a concern over whether or not God's ways, not our ways, but whether or not God's ways are righteous. Is he righteous in judging us? Is he righteous in condemning us? Is he righteous in giving grace and freedom to other people who don't deserve it? Is he righteous? And so it's all this is, is asking these questions about the righteousness of God and so many of the questions deal with God's righteous actions in judging sinners particularly the Jew and providing a way of righteousness for the Gentiles because there was a debate going on in the church well, you, you, you can only be Jewish to be a Christian, so you have to become Jew, right? He's not for the Gentiles. So Paul is going to argue throughout the book of Romans vigorously that justice is maintained throughout God's plan of redemption for all men through Jesus Christ. So the letter to the book of Romans is going to develop for us the concept of God's righteousness, and Paul meticulously argues that God is absolutely righteous and just in everything he does. So throughout the book, he's going to lay out the facts concerning God's righteousness. So in chapter 1, beginning in verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 20, he's going to tell us that, that God's righteousness is revealed in judgment. All right? And the way that he has the ability to judge. And then we take chapter 3, verse 21, and we move all the way through chapter 5, 21, and we discover that the, the God's righteousness is revealed in salvation for all people. Not just the Jews, but for me too. Then we're going to look, chapter 6 through 8, and we're going to see that God's provision for practical righteousness in our life by his spirit whom he's given us and so we are made righteous and we are able to be doing righteous things not on our own accord but because the spirit of god enables us so we're going to go through the first eight chapters this year and then we'll take a break and we'll come back in and hit the last eight chapters next year and in those last eight chapters chapters 9 through 11 we'll discover that god is righteous and how he deals with israel And we'll discover in chapter 12 through the end that God's justice and mercy, they lead to a life in the Spirit. Now, we throw all this together, and what we're discovering is that Paul wants to write this letter to the church in Rome to really lay out for them the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the righteousness of God and how he interacts with us in this world. And what he has done for us and our salvation. And so, this gospel is the power of God. The message of the cross is powerful in the fact that it can save us. And He tells us what Jesus had to endure in order to do that. Now, there's a lot of different ways in which we can communicate the gospel message, and we do that on our own terms because we do that through how we're experiencing it, all right? And and so there was a professor at a seminary a few years back that was trying to communicate with his students the reality of what Jesus did on the cross for them to bring them salvation. And they weren't getting it. And he could just see it wasn't sinking in as he's trying to teach them. So he came up with an idea of what he was going to do. And I want to kind of share that with you. This is another way that people can see the gospel working in the lives of others, all right? And the truth and the reality. Whether it's going to be a written letter that's out and you can take it and you can look through it and and, and get through this this diatribe and go, okay, I understand. This professor, his name was uh, Christensen. He had an open-door policy in his class that he would take any student, no matter who they were, even if they'd been thrown out of other classes, he would let them come into his class if they would abide by his rules. That's always important, right? If you're a teacher, students need to abide by your rules. Well, a young man had been kicked out of his class during the sixth period, and, and so his name was Steve, and no other teachers wanted him. So Brother Christensen said, yeah, he can come into my class. So he did. Steve was told that he could not be late and so he would arrive daily just seconds before the bell. You know, I mean, just, just barely getting in there in time. And, and then he would sit in the very back of the room and he was always the first person to leave when class was over. But one day, Professor Christensen, he asked Steve if he would stay after class because he wanted to talk with him briefly. And after class, he pulled Steve aside and he said to him, you think you're pretty tough, don't you, Steve? And Steve answered, yeah, I do. And so Brother Christensen said, hey, how many push-ups can you do? Steve said, well, I do 200 every night. He says, wow, that's pretty good, Steve. You think you can do 300? Well, Steve says, "I, I don't know. I've never done 300 at one time, but, well. He says I can give it a try. He says, so, can you do 300 push-ups in sets of 10? He says, it's very important for this to work. Can, can you do it? And if you, if you, if you can, you, tell me that you can do it. And Steve said, well, I, I think I can. And then he was a little more confident. He said, yeah, I can do it. I can do it. So Brother Christensen said to him, well, good. I need you here on Friday. I said, okay. Friday came and Steve got to the class really early. And he was up in the front of the class this time. You know, and, and when class started, Brother Christensen, he pulls out this big box of donuts. Now these aren't just any donuts. I mean these are the big delicious donuts. I mean they are cream filled, they are iced over like crazy and they are wonderful donuts. And, and so everyone was getting pretty excited because it's Friday and now the professor has showed up with donuts. Now who <laughs> who doesn't want to walk into a class, last class on a Friday, and see donuts there? And so what he did is he, is he walked over to the first row and the girl who was sitting in the front row, Cynthia, was there. And he asked Cynthia, he said, Cynthia, do you want a donut? And Cynthia said, yes. So Brother Christensen turned to Steve and he asked him, Steve, would you do 10 push-ups so that Cynthia can have a donut? Steve said, sure. So he jumped down from his desk and he quickly did 10 push-ups and he got back up and sat down again. And then Brother Christensen went to the next person, to Joe, and, and, and he asked Joe, Joe, do you want a donut? And he said, yes. And so the professor turned to Steve and said, Steve, would you do 10 push-ups so that Joe can have a donut? So Steve did his 10 push-ups and Joe got a donut. And on it went down the first aisle. And Steve did 10 push-ups for every student in the class in that aisle when they wanted the donut. And it kept going and going and down the second aisle until it came to Scott. Now, Scott was a unique character. Scott was the captain of the football team, and he was the center of the basketball team. And he was very popular, and he was never lacking confidence and companionship. Everybody hung around him. And, and Brother Christensen asked Scott, Scott, do you want a donut? And Scott's reply was, well, yeah, yeah, I do, but I can do my own push-ups. <laughs> and the professor said, no. Steve has to do them. So then Scott says, "No, well, I, I don't want one." So Brother Christiansen turned to Steve and he says, "Steve, would you do ten push-ups so that Steve can, so that Scott can have the donut that he doesn't want?" And Steve gets up and he starts to do the push-ups, and Scott then yells, "Hey, I said I don't want a donut!" But Brother Christian then said, hey, look, this is my classroom. These are my donuts. This is my desk. These are this is my class. And just leave it on the desk if you don't want it. But Steve is still going to do the push ups. By this time, Steve is beginning to slow down in his aggressiveness at his donuts. And so he just decided he'd stay on the floor instead of getting up into his chair every time because he was getting tired. And he could start to see a little perspiration on his brow. And and Brother Christensen started down the third row. And now the students are all starting to say no and get a little angry about things. And the professor asked Jenny, Jenny, do you want a donut? And she said, no. And so he asked Steve, Steve, would you do 10 push-ups so Jenny can have a donut that she doesn't want? And Steve did 10, and Jenny got her donut. By now, the students were all beginning to say no. And there are all these uneaten donuts sitting on the desks. Steve was having really put forth a lot of effort each time it came to another student to do the 10 push-ups for them. And there began to be this small pool of sweat on the floor beneath his face and his arms. And, and his, he was beginning to sweat a lot more because of all the physical effort that was involved in it. And so then Christensen asked if Robert would watch Steve to make sure he was doing all ten push-ups and not fudging on any of them. And Robert began to watch Steve closely, and he's now moving down the fourth row of classes, but something happened in the middle of all this during this time other students are starting to come into class and no longer they're just thirty students but now there's thirty four students and brother christensen was beginning to worry whether or not steve would be able to make three hundred forty push-ups but he went on to the next person and the next and near the end of the row steve was really having a rough time with the push-ups and it was taking him a lot more time to complete each set And Steve asked Brother Christensen, he says, Professor, do I have to make my nose touch the floor on every push-up? And Brother Christensen thought for a moment. He said, well, they're your push-ups. You can do them how you want. And he went on. A few moments later, Jason started to run into the room, and all the students yelled at him, no, stay, stay out. They didn't want him coming in. And Jason, he didn't know what was going on. And, and he's kind of, what? what's going on here? And, 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 and so Steve picked up his head and he said, no, let him come in. And Brother Christensen said, okay, but I'm going to let you get Jason's out of the way right now since you, you're, you're letting him come in. So he did. And, and, and he asked Jason, Jason, do you want a donut? Jason's like, well, yeah, I'll take one. So Steve did 10 push-ups. When he finished the fourth row, then he started to those that were seated over on the floor who didn't have seats by the heaters. And Steve's arms are now shaking, and, and with each push-up it's a little bit more hard, and the struggle is becoming really real. And, 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 and there's not a dry eye in the room because they're seeing the pain that he's going through for them. Now, the last two girls in the room, they were cheerleaders, and everybody liked them. They, they were kind of very popular, and Brother Christensen went to Linda, and he said, Linda, do you want a donut? And she said very sadly, no, no thank you. Steve, will you still do 10 push-ups for Linda so she can have the donut that she doesn't want? He slowly did the push-ups, and finally he went to the last girl, Susan, and he said, Susan, do you want a donut? And with tears flowing down her face, she said, Brother Christensen, can I help him? Professor said, no, he has to do it alone. So Steve, would you do 10 push-ups so that Susan and have a donut and as Steve very slowly finished those 10 push-ups with the understanding that he had accomplished everything that was required him 350 push-ups he finally collapsed on the floor professor then turned to his class and he said and so it was that our savior Jesus Christ pleaded to the father into your hands I commit my spirit with the understanding that he had done everything that was required of him, he collapsed on the cross and he died. And then he made this statement. He said, and like some of those in this room, many of us leave the gift on the desk, uneaten. There is a lot of power and the Word of God as it describes to us what Jesus did so that we can have the free gift not of a donut, but of salvation. You can't help him. You can't ignore it. You can't deny it. He still had to go to the cross for you. But the question is, will you receive it or reject it? As we dig into the book of Romans, I want you to see the gospel. I want you to see the work of Jesus Christ on the cross for what he did for your salvation. For you to either say, yes, I believe, or no, I don't. Let's pray. Father, we are blessed to know what you have done for us because Paul has written to us all that that went into the righteousness of your action against your own son to condemn him on a cross to die for our sins when we're the ones who are guilty. We're the ones who should have done the push-ups. We're the ones who should have died. And yet you lovingly did it for us. Father, may we discover that while your righteousness may seem unattainable on our own, that we can't measure up against it. We don't have to. Because Jesus did. It's in his name we pray. Amen.